0: We can't say we haven't been warned. The number one issue on people's minds is health care. Comprehensive care for women's comprehensive needs. I opposed
1: Obamacare, same reason many people did. There are 700,000 Ohioans who now get care who didn't have it before.
0: One of the persistent themes that's come up in the first few episodes of this podcast is that health care is really about much more than medicine or access to health care services. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and others remind us that only about 10% of health outcomes are determined by what we tend to think about as health care, with behavioral, social, and economic factors playing a far greater role than we sometimes realize. This is not to say, of course, that traditional notions of healthcare are unimportant, only that we need to widen our focus. And that's what we do in this episode. This is Prognosis Ohio, an Ohio health policy and politics report. I'm Dan Skinner. On this episode, I talk with Rob Moore. Rob is the principal for Analysis, a new public policy firm based here in Columbus, Ohio. Rob has worked as an analyst in the public and nonprofit sectors and has analyzed diverse issue areas, including economic development, environment, education, and public health. In this episode, we talk about a report that Rob created titled Ohio's Economy, 2009 to 2016, which is available at SciotoAnalysis.com. Rob and I talked about a pretty wide range of issues, focusing especially on various environmental and economic factors that affect health outcomes here in Ohio. And now it's my conversation with Rob Moore. Rob Moore of Scioto Analysis, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks Dan. So I met you a few months ago at an event at Capital University um, around the opioid crisis and you and I started chatting and I immediately got the sense that we shared a, a view of healthcare as much more than healthcare in the traditional sense. And then um, you happened to send to me this report that you conducted through your organization, uh, Scioto Analysis, Ohio's economy, 2019 to 2016. And you know, I, I, at first, I read the document really as a health policy person as a document about healthcare, but it got me thinking that you know this would be a great opportunity to have a conversation about how we define healthcare, or how we think about health, and um, wanted to have you talk a little bit today about about the report itself. So I I wonder if you could just give our listeners a little bit of a snapshot of the November report, which I'm going to make available through Twitter and elsewhere. Um, Tell me a little bit about what the the report's aims are and um, how you went about conducting it.
1: Yeah, so this report is really based off of an alternative economic uh, measurement tool called the Genuine Progress Indicator. That is really a direct response to the uh, gross domestic product measurement tool. Gross domestic product is the main way that we talk about the size of the economy um, in the United States. But I'll, there are a lot of limitations of, of gross domestic product. One is that there are a lot of economic activities that are not captured within it, like for instance, housework. So if you take care of your kid full time, but then you put your kid in child care, then GDP grows, even though there's no new economic activity being generated. So basically there's a privileging of economic activity that's in quote unquote markets and non-market activities are not included. Another problem with the gross domestic product is this thing called, uh, people call it broken windows. So if you break a window and then you clean it up, then you count the, the breaking of the window and the cleaning up in your economic measurement. So if you pollute a stream and then you go and clean up that stream, you count the economic activity that caused the pollution, and then you count the cleaning up the stream, when in actuality it'd be better for society if we just didn't pollute the stream in the first place.
0: And any number of social issues are like that. I mean, the opioid issues is like that as well. Right now we have this entire healthcare workforce that's mobilizing to try to deal with the consequences. That's been one of the main arguments that folks have pointed to in terms of suing the manufacturers and the uh, distributors to say, you, you guys created this, clean it up now. And that's also a kind of economic activity. Exactly. You know, I, I, it's funny with the GDP. I think a little bit about how um, when, you, when you listen in, in the news, and this is one of the things I love about your report, President Trump talking about the stock markets up and the stock markets down. and But at the end of the day, you know, um, there are so many nuances within any one of these measures. GDP, and you're, you're pointing out that GDP captures certain things, masks other things. But to really get a good look at what the economy is doing requires expanding your understanding of what the economy is.
1: Exactly. So the Genuine Progress Indicator was developed by some environmental economists to do just what you're talking about—to factor in all of these uh, these these statistics and factors that are not included in the genuine in the uh, gross domestic product measure. So GPI, as it's called. Um, Factors in 26 different indicators, um, a handful of economic indicators, nine environmental in- indicators, and then 10 social indicators. Uh, the social ones being things like cost of crime, cost of family breakdown, uh, c- the value of housework, the value of volunteering, things that are not included in gross domestic product. There was a previous report that was done by Ken Bagstad, who used to be here in Ohio. He's an Ohio guy, but now works for USGS uh, in Colorado. He did a report on the Genuine Progress Indicator in Ohio using a snapshot of 1990, 2000, and 2005. And this was sort of carrying on that work. And I looked at each year from 2009 to 2016 to look at from the depth of the recession until today, um, well, a couple of years ago because I was trying to get the best data I really could, um, to see how the recovery from the recession looked in Ohio when you use this alternative indicator.
0: So how does it look? What's your What's your snapshot of it
1: surprisingly a lot it it actually tracked gdp a lot more than some of the other um gpi studies have have shown if you look at gpi versus gdp on like a 40 year scale you usually see gdp really outpacing uh gpi but over this time period just 2009 to 2016 they followed fairly closely but there were some gaps especially from uh 2009 to 2014. And then the last year, I mean, the last year, 2016, was actually a GPI recession, quote unquote. Uh, GPI actually decreased in 2016. Um, and what we see in, in that gap, the difference between GDP and GPI over that time period can mainly be explained by uh, increases in inequality over that time period. And I know in the
0: 2016 numbers, we also had the first decline in life expectancy as well, which a lot of people attributed to the opioid situation. But very alarming for a country that likes to think of itself as, you know, to quote the Beatles, you know, getting better all the time. Uh, it, but, but you're also kind of pointing a little bit here toward something that's been discussed a lot. And before we turn to healthcare specifically, just the vast disparities between counties in Ohio. It, it, when when you listen in the media, you often hear this indicator in Ohio or Ohio's GDP or oh, you know. But doesn't when talking about Ohio doesn't really tell you very much a lot of the time, because we know that, you you know, zip code determines a lot of this. We have uh, this article that was in the dispatch recently about Delaware County and how Delaware County is just booming. And you look at the demographics of Delaware County and you start to see maybe why that is. But there are other counties in the state that are just languishing. So the unevenness is really the big story to understand the dynamics. Another way to think about this, is, of course, is that, you know, we, we're all celebrating that the infant mortality rate has started to go down a little bit in Ohio, but the black infant mortality rate is rising within that. So can you tell me a little bit about the inequality piece and how we should be thinking about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and- you know, we're making, we're talking about this report from the middle of pretty much the most prosperous part of the state overall, Franklin County and its surrounding counties. While there, especially if you look at Southeast Ohio, there are a lot of problems, unemployment being much higher, uh, incomes going, I mean, being stagnant or even going down in some counties. Um, You know, I mean, the health disparities are a big problem as well. And really, I mean, this comes down to a lot of people in the Wonk world are just saying disaggregate, disaggregate, disaggregate. And tell me what that means for those who aren't familiar with that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, basically, if if you're showing statistics, you should also be trying. I mean, if you're showing overall statistics, you should try to break them down too and say, how are the statistics different in different racial groups? How are they different in different geographic categories? You know, r- urban versus rural, different counties. Um, how do they impact men versus women? And It's tough to do. It's a lot of work to disaggregate. And I think that's something that falls on the researcher or the analyst is you only have so much bandwidth and how much should you disaggregate? I did very little disaggregation in this report. That's one of the huge limitations of my report. I'm really giving an overall snapshot of the state. Bagstad's report that he did for Ohio, he actually broke down, I think it was 17 different counties and showed the GPI at the county level. But by doing when he did that, he had to take a lot of state level statistics and just uh, factor them down because it's hard to find county level data on a lot of these. Um, that being said, you know we should be trying to do that as much as we can and that's why we really need the resources to be in the public sector. So there are researchers at universities but also state agencies that are investing in disaggregating and looking at things on a county by county basis and even going down to zip code and census district to see what the different uh, challenges are in different parts of the state.
0: And, of course, disaggregation often messes with the narratives that people want to use, the, the more simplistic narratives where they want to tell stories about, you know, trends within the state or trends within the country. And as we know, American politics doesn't always do nuance very well. We like to tell the big stories that you can sell easily. One of the things I really love about the kind of research you're doing in this report is that it makes clear something that, you know, I, I try to emphasize a lot with the students that I work with and with others that I talk with, which is that when you're talking about tax policy, you're always talking about health policy too. When you're talking about environmental policy, you're always talking about health policy. We like to keep these kind of different policy domains separate in our minds, but actually there's a lot more bleed. And in a way, you know, I think about this report, when I think about, for example, future healthcare professionals, it's a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a little overwhelming. Because, you know, they're trying to learn their trade, how to take care of patients in clinical spaces. And then you say, but actually housework is a really important thing to think about. Or crime is something that you should really be concerned with if you really want to drive health outcomes or employment levels. So the list of things that people need to keep track of is, is fairly endless in this regard. How, how do you think a little bit about where the state is with regard to the, how health, the health question fits into the economic question that you're looking at in this report?
1: yeah I mean I think a lot of the conversation around health policy in the past 20 years has moved it more into this space of trying to see how different uh, different areas impact each other, especially just like economics and that's I mean I think that's one benefit of coming th- at things from an economic perspective is is you can you can quantify things and balance them against each other. Um, in this report the the impact of housework. Is, is huge it's it's just a it's a big deal tell
0: us a little bit about that for those who haven't looked at the report yet
1: yeah I mean uh, basically if you take how many hours uh, regular people are spending cleaning their houses and taking care of their children and taking care of you know other loved ones um, that, that ends up uh, contributing like billions of dollars <laughs> to, to the uh, state economy every single year
0: billions of dollars that don't really that aren't get caught by our standard metrics
1: yeah like if you were having to pay people to do that all that work you would be you know there'd be billions of dollars more in the quote-unquote economy and and that's still value that we're getting that's still people taking care of their kids those houses are still being cleaned but it's not just not being captured by our regular models um but In in public policy, a lot of times we want to move people into formal markets, and there can be a lot of benefits to that because you get you know tax capture, and you know there can be uh, like you move them into more labor protections um, if if that's something that you value. But there are also a lot of things that happen outside of markets that are very valuable and that contribute a lot to people's lives. You know that that matter to people (laughs) and. Especially, you know, w- w- there is this uh, this body of research around relationships. And um, I'm sure, I mean, you may have talked about this on the podcast before, um, but people who have, you know, more friendships and close relationships, people who are married, they tend to have um, longer lives and higher quality lives than people who are more isolated. And a lot of these aren't captured in our, you know, traditional economic metrics, but they definitely impact people's lives in a really important way.
0: Um, You know, and also, you know, I'll just say from a feminist perspective, uh, obviously there have been endless studies about housework. Um, Still to this day, the vast majority of housework uh, within heterosexual relationships is still done by women. It's why some countries, you know, when I think about your report and looking at inequity, um, some countries like I believe Denmark um, has instituted... know, some way to compensate homemakers for the work they do. There's conversations about compensating caretakers for children um, as a sign that the society really values um, the rearing of children and families in general. So there's a lot of uh, different policy approaches that we can take towards these things. Very few of those are on the radar screen within the context of American health policy or economic policy.
1: That's a tough thing for me because... uh... You know, the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a, a pretty serious um, redistributionary program and is a big wage subsidy, brings a lot of people into the labor market, and is one of the biggest ways that we get money to low-income people. It discourages people from staying at home. It discourages people from, uh, from taking care of their kids, from starting businesses that might not make money at the very start of it. Um, and back in the 70s, the House of Representatives, when Nixon was president, passed a family assistance plan, which would have been a cash transfer to families. Um, the good old
0: days, right? The Nixon years.
1: Yeah, yeah. The good old days when Nixon was president. Uh, and that that was something that was saying, you know, if you're a family, that we should make sure that you have a certain income floor. Um, but we've moved away from that. We've moved more towards saying that labor mar- labor force participation is more important and while labor force participation has been showed to increase GDP, I don't really know how it would correlate with something like GPI. I haven't seen any studies on that. Um, I assume it probably has some impact, but maybe not as big for, as for GDP. And I don't think labor, mar- labor force participation rate is an end in itself. Um, it's not necessarily better to have more people in the formal labor force. Uh, it's, it's only as good as it gets people meaningful jobs, it gets people out of poverty and improves people's lives.
0: Great. So, you know, let's let's dive into just a few of the specifics in this report because I think, you know, focusing on healthcare on this podcast, I want to just get you to talk a little bit about some of the things that Ohioans might want to think about as they look around their houses, their communities, um, their state, um, to maybe broaden their thinking about what healthcare policy is.
1: Like air pollution, is one measure that. Really, really focuses and really has a lot to do with health. About ninety-four percent of the quantifiable costs of air pollution are uh, health-related, and that's respiratory issues that come from air pollution, uh, asthma, um, heart, increased heart attacks are highly correlated with um, higher levels of air pollution. And Ohio has actually improved on a lot of its air pollution measures um, over, like, since the um, middle of the recession.
0: If if I'm not Mistaken, Columbus and a few, uh, a handful of other Ohio cities, always ranked in the top ten, if t- or top twenty. I think most of the top ten were in Texas, uh, but th- you know we don't do very well in those national rankings either. I don't know if that's changed at all.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, that's one thing that I would love to dig into more. Is this was really really focused on Ohio, and I'd love to see how a lot of these measures compare state to state. Um, but yeah, I mean air pollution. And having having certain regulations that might be able to reduce air pollution can be ways to uh, to improve some of these health outcomes. But those also come with some of the potential costs of um, you know having having to reduce economic output. And uh, you know the other one you brought up was water pollution. Uh, and some of the impacts of water pollution are from you know health related uh, factors, but there's also aesthetic thing is, you know, impacts that come with water pollution is there's fishing and recreation. Um, The big impact that uh, there's an economist um, up at University of Toledo, um, Kevin Egan, who has measured the economic impact of the algae blooms in uh, Lake Erie. And he's really focused a lot on the impact to tourism and recreation. He says that a very large percent of Ohio's tourism dollars and recreation dollars are um, lake-adjacent counties and that those are really, really being impacted. A big slice is being taken out of the local tourism economy because of the, you know, how bad the algae blooms are in Lake Erie. And Ohio, this is crazy. <laughs> a lot of states, you can find out how polluted the rivers are just with a single statistic, and they have them on their website. For Ohio, this was the hardest statistic I had to pull together um, because they, uh, the Ohio EPA has a list of every single river and lake and whether it is degraded on their website and you can pull it off in PDF form. So you can see it in PDF, but I had to uh, move them over into an Excel file to change them from PDF to Excel. And then I had to create an algorithm to actually pull that data together and see what percentage of lakes and rivers and streams are degraded in Ohio. And the number that came up with was ninety six percent. Ninety six percent of Ohio rivers, lakes, and streams are degraded in some way.
0: When you say degraded in some way, how worried should I be? I mean, is, obviously ninety six is a large number, but I would want to ask: Well, are we talking about you know everything from Superfund level devastation to a much less you know level of
1: desirability, or do you think that this is a health crisis of some sort. That's a, that's a great question. And I think it's hard to say exactly because you look you look over at Pennsylvania and they're at like twenty degra- percent degradation levels and based on that, the same based on the same statistics. That's what they're reporting, which makes me think that there's probably different thresholds that that different states are using. I think we probably like that degradation probably is more sensitive than other states. I'd assume because our numbers are much much higher and like I just don't think we're I mean, I think we're probably a very polluted state compared to a lot of other states. We have a lot of agricultural runoff, we have a lot of industrial um, waste, but like compared to a lot of the southern states, I'd assume we'd be doing better. But like maybe not. I don't know. Um, that basically just means that these uh, that our lakes, rivers, and streams are suboptimal when it comes to water quality for drinking, um, water quality for recreation, and for aquatic life.
0: So I want to just get in a little bit to come back to this question of the expansive definition of health and how we're using that. Obviously, if you're commuting a lot, you're in your car and you're not moving around very much. But are, are we also talking about um, just the kind of mental health effects of these kinds of daily activities that we're engaged in?
1: It's a tough one. Yeah. You know, mental health is very tough to fit into an economic framework, a lot because it flies in the face of a lot of our economic assumptions. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be. Um I think some of the stuff that's been done around addiction is is starting to get to get us there, where we're saying like, you know, what is the cost of addiction? Um, how do we, you know, what what kind of uh, treatments can we use that are more cost effective against addiction? Um, but really, in in like the health world, it comes down to a lot more cost effectiveness rather than cost benefit analysis. Let's find our these goal uh indicators that we think are really valuable and life expectancy has just traditionally been you know you talked about it earlier traditionally been the killer um statistic for health if we can improve life expectancies then we can um, improve people's lives but also talking about quality of life looking at quality adjusted life years is a really valuable one for us to use and more more recently like we have some statistics that that have been very valuable locally for us like overdose deaths right now is a really valuable one for us to say, how can we reduce overdose deaths? What are the most cost effective ways for us to do this? Smoking too. I mean, Ohio is one of the worst states when it comes to um, smoking deaths. And there are a lot of cost effective ways for us to be able to reduce the number of, so like mortality rates in general, Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. smoking is the number one preventable cause of death in the United States. And Ohio is Near the bottom of the pack when it comes to uh, mortality of smoking, so there is some low hanging fruit where people's lives can be improved. People can die less using policy,
0: right? And you know, in, in the political arena, of course, one of the things that I've noticed, and it's pretty clear, there are, for example, many companies that are not hiring people who smoke anymore. So, when you look at the the attempt to make arguments about health, and you try to whether they're moral arguments, they're arguments about. You know, you just really need to take care of yourself and we care for you. When those fall flat, you have these data here showing that, well, there's a real economic discussion around this, too, that we're actually costing, you know, Americans love tax discussions. They want lower taxes. This is a feature of our political culture. With regard to a lot of these health related issues, if you can't make the Ar- argument on the merits. sometimes you need to make the argument in terms of the economic indicators. The opioid uh, crisis is also like this. I know that there are some entire counties that they don't even have a workforce to recruit large companies because the addiction levels are so high. So, you know, different kinds of ways to make the same argument depending on who your audience is.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think economics can give you a a broader way to think about things. Like we've we've been able to reduce... Smoking across the United States by using a lot of regulations, but there are a lot of like negative things that can come from that like if if you are low income you're more likely to smoke. you also have these barriers to getting into middle class jobs and one of these barriers is the n- non-smoking policies that come from that you know an economist might just say, well, we should just set tobacco taxes uh, you know cigarette taxes at the right level and then let that sort itself out. And then we don't have to have workplace policies that are saying like, you can't work here. if You don't smoke, right. which might have all these negative impacts that we don't think about. If you can just capture it within a tax, you know, this, and this is what people say about carbon too. We can make a billion different regulations that say like, you can't dig here or you can only build this kind of plant, etc. Or you can just say, well, we're going to price carbon at its social cost and then have the, uh, the markets decide, um, you know how to actually achieve that reduction,
0: of course, but we 're here in Ohio, this is not Berkeley, so the idea of passing <laughs> some of these regulations I mean we even had just recently the exact opposite way. We had this uh, state legislature uh, move to prohibit local municipalities from getting rid of plastic bags, right, which is kind of the opposite of the environmental movement of saying we need fewer plastic bags. Of course, the joke there is that they did it in the name of small government and. Well, anyway, that's a little too far afield, possibly. (laughs) So, Rob, you know, this report is highly descriptive, and I think that was the point of it. You didn't necessarily want to wade into policy prescriptions, but I'm going to make you or at least ask you to do so. What are some ways in which you think or what, what are some directions that the data you present here point to?
1: The broadest outcome and conclusion that comes out of this report is that income inequality is a drag on Ohio's economic growth. And that has direct implications for our public policy. Our tax code has become, it was already regressive at the state level. Uh, At the start of this study, you know, even go back 2005, go back further, uh, we have a regressive tax code that means that lower income people need to pay a larger percentage of their taxes towards the state than higher income people do. Sometimes uh, maybe twice as much of their of their percentage of their income goes than, uh, than higher income people do. At the same time, we have an earned income tax credit, which we talked about a little bit earlier, that is not refundable at the state level. So. Basically, it is much lower than it could be and that other states have give it. We're only one of four states that have an earned income tax credit that is not refundable. Um, and that keeps a lot of dollars out of low-income people's pockets. Um,
0: so if you could just say for listeners, so
1: how, how is a regressive tax a health issue? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I'm mainly talking about the inequality side of this, but the EITC and uh, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, SNAP, Food Stamps, there's been a lot of research that's been coming out recently linking these programs, which are basically cash programs, even food stamps, even though they're paying for uh, food, that is basically money in people's pockets that they're using to supplement their incomes. And um, we know that,
0: that that money would be used elsewhere, perhaps on healthier
1: things. Exactly. And there is a growing body of research, a lot of it being done by Hillary Hoynes at UC Berkeley, and some of the other leading uh economists in the social safety net are finding that when you reduce people's uh safety net benefits um, when you reduce their cash or income, it has impacts on their health. people have uh lower I mean, higher mortality rates they have shorter lifespans, and they are more likely to become prone to disease such as something like diabetes mm-hmm. um, and that is beco- that is becoming more and more clear so money in people's pockets and reduction of inequality and reduction of poverty, this also has health impacts. These are all very interconnected with each other. If you can reduce people's, if you can improve people's health, then they'll have better incomes. If you can improve people's financial situation, then they'll they'll have better health outcomes as well. It's funny, a lot of these safety net features um, like like SNAP and the Earned Income Tax Credit, these are being shown to have even larger impacts than medicaid on people's health outcomes um, which is really fascinating um, a really really fascinating thing that's coming out in the research
0: really does shape the way we think about you know when when, again as a teacher when students come to you and they say well i want to have the greatest impact possible i want to care for the most people possible You you can say well there are a number of different ways to do that. Being a physician is one of them. Being a nurse, is an, or any other kind of healthcare professional, is is important. But if your goal is health, then we really are again at the point that a lot of these podcast discussions have pointed to, which is that we need to think more holistically about it. That we need to stop thinking about health as a technical skill set or healthcare improvement as a technical skill set but that we also need to get involved in some areas and develop new competencies in areas that simply weren't on the radar screen of the traditional healthcare workforce. So your report is really helpful uh, in pushing us in that direction. How can listeners uh, read your report?
1: It's available online. You can go to sciotoanalysis.com. That's S-C-I-O-T-O analysis.com. And then we have an analysis page that has this report along with some other reports that we've done on there. And yeah, that's probably the best way to really access
0: it. Great. Well, Rob Moore, thanks for joining us on the show today.
1: Thanks,
0: Dan. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Riley McKee. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. As always, we welcome your emails to prognosisohio at gmail.com and your tweets and follows at at prognosisohio. Your feedback would be much appreciated. If you have any ideas for themes and guests, we'd also love to hear them.
1: See you next time.